For October 25th, 2010, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 121. Mark Lee, Polo. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm your host on the left coast, Matthew Rather, here with the panel to overthink your feedback. That's right, we have your emails, and we are going to uh, read them and ridicule them. No, uh, we're not going to do that. (laughs) We're going to answer the questions uh, or uh, address the comments that you've made about episodes of the show or about, um, you know, things in the culture that you find interesting. So uh, let's, let's dive right in um in honor of, of a news item that we're not going to go a ton into but that that happened i guess mel gibson's hangover 2 cameo has been canceled um oh i know i was I looking was, forward to that that was I like was, the hot the hot cinematic happening that was going to take place well not for long <laughs> we're going to get cinematic happenings that are even hotter uh because we uh for our question are going to ask what tv show uh, or film, I guess, if you want to go that way. Would you like a walk-on cameo in? And what would you like your walk-on part to be in that film? Uh, joining us from the, uh, from the what? From the north bank of the Charles River, it's Natalie <laughs> Baseman. <laughs> Hello! <No! laughs> Yay, Natalie! And people playing the, the drinking game Drink Now, Someone's Before Fenzel in the Alphabet. <laughs> Natalie, walk on part! Uh, my walk on part. Uh, first thought was Paula Dean's home cooking. Uh, then I realized that uh, that might not be so much of a walk on as uh, me getting to fulfill a fantasy of cooking with Paula Dean. Uh, but I'll have to go with uh, Jersey Shore instead, which, <laughs> which I have actually never even seen an episode of. So what I'm thinking I would do is that I would go undercover as the new hot friend from Boston. <laughs> And I'd slick up my hair and don a short skirt and just be the the insider and, and be able to tell people what's really going on. <laughs> on the on the set of the Jersey Shore. On the set of the Jersey Shore. You would publish that guest post on overthinkingit.com. <laughs> <laughs> a live uh, well, Yeah. I'll start getting on it. I'll 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 dial up Snooky and see what's going on. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Uh, in the same city, number two in the alphabet, but number one in my heart. It's Peter Fenzel. Oh, thanks. You should really try letting Natalie into your heart. She's she's quite an excellent human being. Oh. Uh, but I appreciate the 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 ranking. It's nice to be ranked as oh, boys. Yeah, no, I, I just I just meant that that of all all the overthinkers are are you know deep in deep in my heart, deep in the heart of Texas. Excellent. So, so I had, I had, I had two ideas. So, my first idea is that I'd love to go on Antiques Roadshow as a (laughs) as a time traveler from the future, trying to get them to like ascertain the value of like a towel holder from Pottery Barn or something, like some object that's contemporary, and be like, "Look, no one from my time knows how much this is worth. Like, I've come back; it's two thousand years old, and it's like a copy of Modern Warfare." The, the new uh, the new Xbox game or something. It's like, you, you need to tell me because I need to, to bring that money back in, into the future. I just love the idea of there being those people who are very soberly dressed, and then I'd be wearing those like really narrow uh, sunglasses that are like one strip across, like for snow blindness, and maybe even have a kit from Knight Rider thing going back and forth on it, a little red dot, uh, and I could talk <laughs> about how in the future antiques are illegal and this is a rare a rare find <laughs> i think this might be a little bit too high concept so the other idea that i had <laughs> was to go on the television show numbers and i'm not sure whether numbers has done this or not because i don't watch it that often but i'd love to, the television show numbers is about uh, people who fight crime using math but not in like a cool square one kind of way in more of like a, a terse uh law and order kind of way uh and go on there as a guy with like a muppet who uh, is like for some reason really obsessed with like the number two or something and like and like makes Muppet related number commentary like throughout the episode, right? Just like here and there, peppered in there, be like that's the number three, and he's like, yeah, we need to do this aggression, the statistical thing. It's like, yay, we can count, and I just love everybody just to like look over to the side, look back, 
mostly I just want to make a spectacle of myself. I think that's what I've discovered in trying to plumb the depths of this. So, um, yeah, so there you go. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to go on Jersey Shore um, because it would just be a little bit too close to home, I think. And it would uh, just be like, I'd have flashbacks to my upbringing to your uh, right, yeah. and all that. Because you don't want to uh, have your six-pack put all the rest of the dude's six-packs of shame as well, right? That's right. Mine would be probably bass or maybe like a, like a harpoon something. Like, so it'd be a nice six-pack <laughs> that I would bring. A, a micro-brew six-pack. <laughs> it's really I, hoppy. <laughs> I always say that I have an Antarctic six-pack in that, like, I carry just enough extra food storage that if, like, I were to go to Antarctica with somebody who's, like, actually really fit, like they would die and I would survive ripped because I would, I would burn away. <laughs> my six pack would stand out uh-huh. after I burned away all of my excess blubber. But there you go. Trying to keep warm. You'd, you'd want to keep your blubber though, to keep yourself warm. You'd want to fatten up. Well, that's the idea. And then, then I have another cheeseburger or something you just as, as I'm making this explanation. Yeah. Mark Lee. Now, I'm, I'm painting this idea that I'm like morbidly obese and I'm not, but not that there's anything wrong with that, of course. But anyway, Mark Lee should go Mark because Lee. he's. Yes, that's me. Okay. Well, Mark first I was. Uh... <laughs> Mark Lee. Let's just do that for the rest of the podcast. Mark Polo. Lee. Mark Lee. Polo. Yes. <laughs> <Right>. Poli. <laughs> Mark Lee. Poli. Okay. So for, this brings it easy. My favorite TV show is 30 Rock, so I'm going on 30 Rock. And I would try to be as close to sort of my own actual. Uh, you know, personality as possible in my walk-on appearance. So it'd be two things. I would join the writing staff because all of my amazing contributions via overthinking it have been recognized by the girl, the TGS show writers. And they've, you know, hired me on, you know, both to fulfill the Asian quota uh, as well as to, uh, you know, give my zany uh, perspective on pop culture and put that on the, the show. Um, and all sorts of hilarity would ensue. But the episode would culminate with me making an ass out of myself at a team karaoke night um, by, like, doing offensive rap and, I don't know, dancing on the on the thing and causing all sorts of a ruckus. And, and me and Tracy Jordan would uh, just uh, have a, a grand old time and then that would be the end of my... Uh, but I would do something appropriate and that would get me kicked off of the writing staff. And that would be my um, my guest turn on, on 30 Rock and it would be glorious. Fantastic. I like how that, that includes, I mean, I'm like enamored by Alec Baldwin and his character, hence the sort of the, the Baldwin-esque uh, inflection that came at the end of that statement. But uh, I, I mostly envision myself having a lot of fun with Tracy Jordan on the show. I don't want to be a suit. I don't want to be one of the NBC execs that, um, that kisses Jack Donaghy's ass. No, I'll be with the people, with the writers. Did you guys watch the live episode? I did. Yes. Yeah. It was fun. It was, uh, it was a very OTI sort of episode because it's a live episode about doing a live episode. It's very meta. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. John Hans, uh, both of his cameos, uh, both in the East Coast version and the West Coast version, were my favorite parts of the show. Yeah. He's just handsome and hilarious. The two H's that make my world tick. He's so dreamy. Yeah, I mean, it was mostly novelty, though, right? I mean, now we can, I don't know if we want to go down this rat hole now, but um, just sort of if you had to evaluate it more, um, uh, you know, objectively and sort of or, or with comedic value of sorts, right? I mean, that the, the live episode was not, you wouldn't call that one of the funnier episodes of 30 Rock. It was just kind of special and different and unique, right? Yes, I would agree with that. Novel is. You wouldn't correct. want to see it like that every week, clearly. No, definitely not. And I wouldn't want to see them do that more than once ever. Uh, But it was fun, especially because so many of the people involved have experience doing live programming. So it was fun to see them go back to their roots. Yeah. Oh, show. All right. Here's mine. I want to be on Soul Train. (laughs) <laughs> I would like why to be, would that be mad go on <laughs> i would like to be a dancer featured on soul train shaking my ass on uh <laughs> why why soul train and not solid gold is what i want to know <laughs> i would or, imagine you would want to be a solid gold dancer or, or would you want to be on the grind or do you not own hot pants <laughs> oh the grind oh i was going to mention like him being one of the showgirls in showtime at the apollo up there with kiki shepherd but uh the grind i'd forgotten about that that show was hilarious yeah that was just like a pictures of people dancing together right like that's all that show is but they're like wearing bikinis and they're like on the beach or something and they're all like grinding and stuff it's no uh, it's no pants off dance off but yeah <laughs> 
Whatever happened to American Bandstand? This, did uh, Ryan Seacrest was going to bring that back? Did that happen? I don't know. Maybe it'll be I, on his new television network, right? Ryan Seacrest, I think, is is rumored to be planning an Oprah Winfrey esque television network, but for dudes wow. with really? frosted tips. <laughs> <laughs> wow! So yeah. it's going to be sort of a metro kind of show thing, like Metro TV. Metro TV. That's metro, what you should call it. Metro Net. Yeah. So they're going to take Spike TV and like do it about three quarters of the testosterone. Plus a dose of, I don't know, other bodily chemicals. And I thought you were going to say that they took Spike TV and they add a little bit of, of coloring. A little bit spice. of Axe body spray. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's plenty of that on, on Spike TV already. The question is, once they give up on their show concept, which Star Trek show are they going to so- show reruns of endlessly <laughs> late at night? Because <laughs> that's what all these networks do. It's like, oh, we're going to have this great TV show. That's all original programming, TV no channel. Showing, no one's showing D- Deep Space Nine, right? I see the next generation all over the place, but I think someone's got to show Deep Space Nine now. Oh, I th- we got to call Ryan Seacrest to let him know <laughs> that that's the eventual fate of his television station. Right, absolutely. <laughs> like your home for Deep Space Nine reruns <laughs> and also episodes of Cops. That's <laughs> <laughs> G4. G4 doesn't even show video game coverage that much anymore. It's like all episodes of Cheaters. And uh, have you ever watched Cheaters? No, oh, that's just... a show I'd love to have a cameo on. Oh, my gosh. That show's awful. It's like ungodly awful. It's uh, it's like private investigators investigating claims of a, of like somebody cheating on you. Like it's a quote unquote reality show yeah. where like uh, where somebody comes in and is like, I think my wife is cheating on me. It's like very obvious that she is, and they send private detectives and cameras like after her, and then they report back, and, and it's all very dramatic, and it's just so slimy and awful, and like the host is this like slimy dude. Uh, and it's just like you get this it's like this perfect example of uh like descending it's it's the cave at Dagobah. It's just like descending and like finding your evil self because it's like the person who suspects the cheating by the time the show is over is usually like so thoroughly humiliated by the experience of having worked with all these people that like it tries to play it off. But I don't know. I'd be on that show as like as like maybe a, a shoe shine guy who like shows up at random <laughs> and it's like gives secret tips I'm like where he thinks they are. Like all oh, the word on the street is like that character in uh, Police Squad. If you ever watched Police Squad, the old Leslie Nielsen precursor to The Naked Gun. Had a great character where whenever the cops were lost in a case, they would go by the shoeshine guy who would have the word on the street. And Frank Drebin would have a shoeshine and would be told like everything that was going to happen in the episode uh, after giving him money. So it was, a, it was a good conceit. It didn't really last past the season, but there you go. My, uh, my other choice for a walk on cameo was in uh, President Obama's weekly YouTube address. I would, like to, I would just like to cross in back of him and kind of do a low-key thumbs up to the camera as he's talking about, you know, the economy or jobs or, you know, jobs in the economy or I don't know. You, you wouldn't want to make it more like other YouTube videos by bringing, I don't know, say your cat on there uh-huh. or, you know, like by doing a slideshow remix, uh, music video, of your favorite Justin Bieber song. Yeah, no? or like no, right? I'll do the I'll do the pose. I'll do the look from uh, Dramatic Chipmunk, right? <laughs> you will. You could live auto tune it. I could uh, also guys, that. Yes, you know the auto tune the news guys. I think those are so brilliant. I love those guys. I hope they listen to this show. No, that's that's uh, <laughs> unreasonable to expect. Um, but you listen to this show, our listeners, and so because this is a listener feedback, this is where I shamelessly solicit uh, uh, support in the form not just of your your custom, your listenership, but also uh, in the form of dollar dollar bills. That's right. Send us your cash money uh, if you wish to support what we do. There's a PayPal donate link. On uh, on the uh, in the right sidebar on overthinkingit.com, um, it's it's uh, been wonderful to see people um, fi- discover that and and send us a few bucks. No donation too small. Anything to show that that uh, that you support the show and it you know it helps defray server costs. Um, with the success, I'll tell you something. With the success of uh, Shana's female character flowchart article. Woo-hoo. Last week, yeah, which was awesome, which, uh, I mean, that got, you know, almost 100,000 views on our site, right? And, like, uh, uh, and it was elsewhere on the Internet, too. People probably didn't even click back. So that's been seen by, what, a quarter million people probably across the Internet. Um, We, uh, with the success of that, we have exceeded our monthly allotted bandwidth uh, for overthinkingit.com for the first time ever. 
ever, which oh, is wow. awesome. Wow. Uh, we, we took it right to the red and, and just kept the pedal to the metal. Anyway, but, uh, you know. It, it, probably, more- doesn't, it probably doesn't hurt that the gra- it's a graphic the size of a placemat. <laughs> they have to download every time they access it. I know. I anyway. actually probably <laughs> should. Yeah, whenever you access it. Yeah. I, I actually probably should have done a little bit of, of uh, optimization on that thing before it, before it went live. Um, but anyway, so, you know, that happened. Um, and, uh, the fact that we have support from our, uh, from our listeners, um, you know, combined with our other sources of income, like the ads that you see on the site and our, our awesome Zazzle store, which you should check out <laughs> to buy $30 t-shirts. How many of those have we sold? I think last time I checked in, the answer was one. Yeah, no, no, no. We, we, people, there are actually some pretty clever stuff, you know, that, that we've put on there. Uh, and yeah. we have sold a non-trivial number of t-shirts. Our, oh, that's our, good. Our cut is not super. If, hey, if you represent a, uh, you know, a t-shirt store like Cafe, who does what Cafe Press or Zazzle or something like that does, uh, but cheaper, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, we'd love to hear from you because we would get more into this. You know, God, every seems like every, you know, douchebaggy 20 something starts a T-shirt shop. No, keep us from from being douchebaggy 20 something and starting. A <laughs> well, la- last shop. time last time I asked you, our only T-shirt for offer was the Yahoo Serious T-shirt that said, <sighs> why so serious on it? And him in the bathtub, <laughs> which I actually purchased and like wore to the gym on numerous occasions before um, before I decided that I just couldn't necessarily wear this naked dude in the bathtub on my, <laughs> playing the violin. Oh, my wait, wait, Matt, so what happened when we exceeded our bandwidth? Did um, guys with lead pipes you know, from the hosting server company no, uh, come I got to your a door? No, I got a very urgent email, like all caps, like, please be advised that you are exceeding your blah, 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 blah. you have used 98% of your blah, 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 blah. And so I called. I didn't even email or do a support ticket online. I, I picked up the phone, which, you know, I'm phobic about, and I made a, uh, I made a phone call to, um, you know, buy another 100 gigs of... Uh, 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 oh. In traffic and out traffic for oh, okay. So if we hadn't done that, then this, we just wouldn't gone dark, then, huh? Yeah, it would have shut us down. I I think it would have. I mean, the server would have still been operating, but no traffic would have gone gone in and out. But I could do that with confidence because of the the support of listeners uh, like you who have yes. given in you know in amounts from the the very small a few dollars up to the incredibly high, um, and you know the generosity of some of our our listeners and and gifters. I, I hesitate to say donors because we're we're not a charity. You know, it's a uh, uh, it's you're just forking over your money. There's no tax benefit <laughs> to doing it, but there is the benefit of knowing that you're a part of uh, what we do here on Overthinking It, and um, and we are very honored that uh, so many people have considered what we do worth supporting. All right, yeah, consider like a tip jar at the you know at, at the cafe. You put in a few bucks, and we don't stare at you and give you a look and be passive-aggressive next right, time you come absolutely. in. absolutely. Yeah, totally. And it has an index card on the front of the tip jar that says something like, support counterintelligence or something. <laughs> also, also, if you're, like, hanging out with a, with a girl and, like, maybe she's a little bit out of your league and you want to impress her, you could leave us a really big tip. Um, that was always my favorite uh, kind of table to wait on when I waited tables. It was, like, the guy with the girl out of his league because he would be like, hey, watch me tip this Applebee's guy 30%. Like, yeah, big spender, high roller. <laughs> so you've I was like, you ne- go. You've never seen insecurity like this before. <laughs> I love those ad cafes. You've never seen salad like this before. You've never <laughs> yes, seen hyperbole yes, like this before. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Man. Anyway, so that's the um, that's the end of uh, that's the end of my public radio like appeal, and you won't hear another one, I promise, until the next listener feedback episode. Let us jump in. Yeah, we because we had so much feedback last time, we didn't even get to it. So this this isn't even. We're still in the backlog. We're not even on to the new stuff. So this is uh, this is about the geek episode, and it's a very long email. I'm not going to read nearly all of it, but um, uh, but it's also from the Philippines. I think that may be a first. Anyway, so uh, hi guys. Writes in this um, writes in this commenter. I'm Monzen from the Philippines. I'm probably uh, not pronouncing that right. I'm so sorry. Uh, maybe you should uh, do it phonetically. Or do like Emil from Poland does and, and call 203-285-6401 and correct my pronunciation of Polish. 
Uh, Monson from the Philippines, a, pan of, a fan of many things overthinking it. I've been hooked with the Overthinking It site and podcast since Rather and Sheely guested in the Gleeful podcast. Uh, I've listened to the podcast since the episode on the summer movies. I have also emailed the These Fun-Loving Teenagers once, commenting on the voting process and the judges for the final episode. Actually, I, I have to break in and comment about this. Monson did something awesome, which, uh, which was if you saw the season finale of Glee, the regionals uh, competition, that spoiler alert, the Glee kids lost. Um, you only see certain of the ballots. And, uh, and so Monson did an analysis uh, that, sh- that showed what the other ballots must have been. And it was this, it was this incredibly long, detailed thing with uh, many tables and charts and, and uh, things like Oh, that's like wonderful. That. Yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was fantastic. We almost considered it uh, publishing it um, as an article. Uh, on the uh, on the site, it was almost that that good. Um, anyway, uh, uh, Monzen continues. I just listened to your recent overthinking it podcast about geekdom. That's the one that had Randall Schwartz on it, and I loved it. It inspired me to share some comments about geekdom and popular culture. So here goes. Um, uh, okay, I'm going to skip a lot of this, but here are the salient points. Does being a geek require expertise on a particular subject, or is it a more than average level of interest? Uh, enough to be considered a geek, and uh, and then has the internet um, has the internet as a result of its existence produced more or less more or fewer geeks? There you go. I, I don't know who wants to take that. Oh yeah, okay, okay. Well, I mean, I, I was the one who reacted strongest to this in our in our back channel discussion, and I don't want to um, I don't want to come off as uh, as grumpy. I, I'm a little bit hungover today, so I apologize. Uh, but this is a conversation that I feel like is starting to run out of steam, right? This what is a geek conversation because I'm having it in more and more places, and it seems to be accomplishing less and less. And I don't mean this as an affront. I mean I don't mean this as sort of like a, oh, don't bother me with your question. I mean it more as like. It's becoming the answer to the question, which is we are getting into a cycle of defining and redefining this term rather than actually using it. So one of the things that is notable about this email is that it never uses the word geek uh, in a way that isn't involved in defining it, right? Never calls anybody a geek, never refers to anybody as a geek. So if all you're doing with the term is talking about what it means, uh, well, then everybody can continue to argue the specifics of this particular uh, definition, and it's very political, right? And and I've established this on the podcast before. um, You want geek to mean – if you think geek is a word that's used for you, then you want it to mean a certain thing because you want to feel like you're being referred to in a certain way by people. That can be good or bad. Like you either want to think that people are being mean to you or you want to think that people are being nice to you. Or you're trying to reclaim the term or you're trying to sort of create something else. I mean, geek is kind of the new hipster in terms of a word that at one point sort of meant something and is now kind of referring to a fairly vague uh, aspect uh, of of culture and of people. I mean, what what do you guys think about that? I mean, is this a conversation where we've we are talking, we are actually over talking it to the point where it's actually losing some of its traction? Uh, as a, well, as let a, me as jump a, in here. I think uh, it's curious that you use hipster as an analogy for that for a couple of reasons. One yeah. is geek is a phrase that has been around for, or at least I've been aware of for a very long time. Yeah. Hipster is a phrase is a term that I only very recently, within the middle part of the last decade, became aware of. And I don't think that hipster has quite the same sort of, you know, longstanding preconceived sort of amorphous definition of it uh, that that geek does. And so that also well, in its so, current, I mean, in its current uh, incarnation, people have been I don't know if there was a previous was there a previous incarnation oh, that I'm sure. not sure hipsters were like beatniks, you know what I mean? And, and hippies. They- and yeah, it was all it was all of a piece. Wait, so wait, hold on a second. You're saying yeah, that as, the as, as, hipster was as, soon a, was, as, as soon as hip began to be used as a you know as a term to mean cool or to refer to a certain kind of cultural production hipster was also used as well yeah the term hipster according to the online etymology dictionary which is one of my favorite websites uh www.etymonline.com uh it dates from about 1941 Uh, now granted geek dates from much earlier um, geek goes all the way back to the 1500s. Wow. Um, refer, but it, but its meaning hasn't has changed a lot recently. So its original meaning is an, it, it, a simpleton, a fool, like an idiot, right? A dupe, um, and that's the word geek, right? 
Uh, and then uh, in around the turn of the century, it came to me in a sideshow freak, uh, somebody who specifically would bite the heads off of chickens, rats, and snakes. Um, right. And that's something that it's meant for most of its history. Right. And then in the 80s, it came to mean a sort of in- insulting slang term for teenagers who were awkward. Right. And like who didn't have social skills. And only fairly recently, as we as as people have kind of let their geek flag fly, so to speak, uh, has it come to have this broader meaning about enthusiasm. It's never meant prior to that enthusiasm for what you're doing it's referred more specifically to being a social outcast right and that's like the the what geek has generally meant uh but but it's changed recently to be like oh somebody who's enthusiastic about something somebody who really loves something uh is probably influenced by other terms that exists like the term what otaku in japanese meaning for somebody who's like so obsessed with something that they never go outside and like uh, really into a topic a subject um, and also this like realization that people who are computer programmers can actually have lots of friends and be very popular and not be awkward and aren't nerds or geeks or anything like that. Um, well, also, and even, even if they are, they've become very sort of economically successful. Yeah. They've been becoming yeah. an important economic and cultural force. Exactly. And I mean, what I would say to, to actually reconsider the question again, seriously, I would say the meaning of geek that is at all positive is so new that it doesn't really lend itself to really specific shades of meaning like just yet, as long as there are a lot of people who are continuing to pull it in different directions as a sort of a matter of personal mission. Uh, if that means it's like I want geek to mean X. Well, geek used to mean for a long time somebody nobody liked. And since you're you're trying to get it to mean something else, like you can try and they can try and we can pull the word in different directions. Um I don't know. I mean, yeah, it is interesting. We have no, I mean, we have no reference to any kind of, you know, stable external authority for that. It's just a matter of us making conflicting assertions. You say it means this. I say it means it means this. And that kind of conversation can go on forever, which which may be um, one of the reasons that people want to have it, you know, because it's something mm-hmm. to talk about. And we're very lonely yeah, at our computers. Yeah, I mean, I think what it's the, also yeah. a. Well, I think it's also a good discussion that people are interested in or the public is interested in, maybe because geeks are now a huge market that we can now sell iPads to and video games. And you can be a geek of all different things, but it usually means that you're really going to like it and you're probably going to invest a lot of money into it and have money because you have a job that pays you well. So I feel like it could be some kind of a... A cultural marketplace motive behind it as well. That would certainly uh, give some traction to the, uh, or some narrative to the uh, fact it's come up so quickly as a new word. Because one of the fastest ways to get a new term or a new word, widespread adoption, is to create a financial incentive for it to be such. Because then all sorts of people will like spend a lot of extra time and energy trying to convince you that this sort of thing is real. Like Valentine's Day. Uh, or, or like engagement rings, for example, which of course don't predate the 20th century. Um, but you know, diamonds for engagements being this thing that these companies decided there was a profit motive behind, and so they would invent their tradition. And within a couple of decades, it was something that people felt like had been around forever. Um, diamonds are forever, <laughs> <laughs> unless you burn them, which because they are flammable. But uh, <laughs> although that would be pretty, that would be pretty, uh, that would be pretty uh, decadent. Yeah, like, that would be awesome. Or, or, yeah, if, you, or yeah, if you break off an engagement, you set the ring on fire. <laughs> but I so Monzen, we're going to move on, and I'm actually not going to do any of the other points. There, were, there are some, there are a lot of good points in this email, but we want to move on so that we can get to as many emails as possible, and uh, as many of our listeners who wrote in as possible. I, you know, here's what I would say about this. Um, what, I think when you, whenever you find yourself in a conversation like this, it's important to ask yourself why you want to have this conversation. That is to say, what does it serve? Um, and, and who does it serve uh, for you to continue having this this sort of conversation? And, you know, you find yourself in situations in, in life where you're very passionately devoted to things that are actually maybe detrimental to your interest, you know, uh, humanistically conceived. Um, and this may be one of those times. Anyway. Cool. All right. And, and thank you. This, it's a great question and a great contribution from a yeah. great contributor. 
It is. Yep. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Monten. And thank you for inaugurating our, our uh, Filipino listenership. It is fantastic to have uh, listeners all around the world. And it's one of the things we're proudest of on the, on the show. Emil from Poland, speaking of all around the world, uh, jumping continents, right? Uh, uh, I think this was from the same episode. He, he says, I'm 19. No, I think this was from the one we were talking about, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Oh, so it was right. the, ba- yeah, yeah. the band names. Ironic, the ironic video game band names. Right, yes, it was. So uh, Amanda Marcotte was our guest on that episode. And uh, he says he's 19 minutes and 32 seconds into the show, and he has two well actually. One, he says, whatever you do, do not call your band whatever 88. 88 is the eighth letter. H is the eighth letter in the alphabet. Uh, it also stands for Heil and Hitler. Anything 88 is this is like skinhead, white supremacist, neo-Nazi code uh, on the Internet. So don't, uh, so don't name your pro band tip. That. Pro tip. Thanks. Well, so I'm not going to go to the Super 88 anymore. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the other the con- the countervening point is that eight, of course, is also uh, sounds like the Chinese word for wealth, right? Um, and or for 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 wealth, and so thus eights and eighty eights are used in the names of Chinese businesses uh, to connote that they will be financially successful. And getting a license plate in China with an eight on it or a phone number with a lot of eights in it is actually fairly expensive sometimes. I mean, I'm not so keen on the specific experiences of it, but I know enough about it to say that that eight in, in – if you were to go around the world on sort of a pound-for-pound pound basis or person-per-person person basis, there's probably more people who think of eight as uh, illustrative of wealth than who think of eight as illustrative of Hitler. Although it is good to know uh, that you don't want to reference Hitler by accident. Yeah. Uh, because that, that can be awkward. Well, this is, another, this is another one of those kind of definitional arguments where you say it means this and I say it means this. You know, and there's no, you know, there's no sort of god of interpretation who's going to, to come down and say exactly what, what things mean. Yeah. That's Although why, it's possible that in the circles... Do, yeah. That's why we can yeah. do hundreds of episodes of this podcast. <laughs> well, it's also, I mean, there, there, it's also possible that in the circles that Emil is running in and the websites he goes to and the bands he's familiar with, like this term does mean that. And he's not just making something up or being arbitrary or advancing a position. But in that particular circle of readership, like that's what it means. Are you saying that because he's from Poland? And, you know, Poland was invaded by Hitler in Germany. Yeah, I'm saying that I'm given that probably in Eastern Europe they have different cultural attitudes surrounding Hitler than we do here because he was somebody who was very immediate and present. And because, what, Germany talked like a lot of uh, Nazi-related speech is illegal, right? And it's like kind of something you have to do underground if you want to do it. And and it's just a very touchy subject. I mean, the Poland was ground zero for the Holocaust. I mean, so, you know, you don't want to... You don't want to bring up Hitler if it's going to hurt people's feelings. That's for, for sure. Yeah, for uh, sure. Also, I hey, mean, speak, also, what they speak. Yeah, speaking speaking of uh, Hitler and band names, there actually is an American band called Get This. Hitler stole my potato. <laughs> True. Google that it. Seem, that seems long for a band name. Google it is on the longer it's like side. Toad yes. the Wet Sprocket is the only band that I give four words to. <laughs> um, all okay, right, Casey on. and the Sunshine Band. Five. Oh yeah, but that doesn't really count if it's like like <laughs> Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. The E Street Band has four words. Yeah, but um, no, one, no one just says KC, right? It's always KC and the Sunshine Band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, huh. The Captain and Tennille has four words. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> do it to me one more time. It also may have something to do with the kind of with the current, you know, cultural climate in Europe, with you know, waves of of immigration uh, coming in, and kind of a lot of nationalist, uh, you know, reactionary factions kind of gaming gaining force. In- yeah, like how Angela Merkel came out against multiculturalism this week. Yeah, right. And, well, and what- how- what was the quote? Multiculturalism what? has failed, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how in Bosnia they had that election, which which uh, was very favorable to um, the sort of people who previously, through non-elective means, had exercised a variety of nasty things against their neighbors, aka genocide. Um, so yeah, so it's a little bit rough sometimes, and we obviously don't want to on our podcast advance the causes of neo-Nazism. That's not our goal. Like just to make it totally clear. Overthinking are, yeah. it does not equal Nazis. Yeah, we are I'm not to, Nazis. Yeah, I'm going, I'm going to take the controversial position against white supremacy. <laughs> and and thanks, I won't, I won't I, name I names. Because, and, oh, sorry, and go hate ahead. crimes. Also hate crimes. 
I'm not going to put names on people or make them wear badges or anything, but there's a non-trivial number of contributors to Overthinking It who are in fact Jewish. And as such, if you think that Overthinking It for some reason because of something we said just might be a neo-Nazi skinhead organization, um, I unfortunately have some bad news for you. And you should probably go and find another entertainment. But, uh, yeah, for me, for me, it's probably too late. <laughs> Because <laughs> uh, you already shaved your head, Natalie. Is that what you're saying? Hey, well, because, I, because because I'm Jewish. I mean, I'm probably in too deep at this point to get out safe. <laughs> well, I didn't want to reveal if you didn't want to be put on the spot. But um, you didn't I mean, if you're comfortable, eh. all right. Uh, push, I didn't want to be out. <laughs> pushing on, pushing on with Emil here. Uh, Oh, oh, he has a big well actually for us about 8-bit music. Uh, saying that people lately started doing music using uh, four waveforms that made 8-bit um, music uh, kind of... Um, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm editing here on the fly. Uh, made it unique. Uh, the square wave, the sinus wave, uh, the sinusoidal wave, uh, sawtooth wave, and 8-bit noise. Uh, saying that that is a recent development is wrong, wrong, wrong. You can't be any wronger than oh, that. Sick burn. You could be wrong, 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 which is wronger than wrong, wrong, wrong. It's, it's true, you possible. Could be, you could be four <laughs> wrongs wrong and not only three <laughs> wrongs wrong. Uh, it's a false uh, distinction between in-game music and true music. Music is music. Music. Uh, eh. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Just reading it. We'll we'll go back to that. Yeah. That's uh, right. Uh, secondly, uh, we meant it. We meant it as a positive assertion, not a normative one. Anyway, secondly, covering pop songs uh, in um, kind of blips and bleeps is nothing new. Uh, I wasn't saying it was new either. By the way, sorry. Continue with the. With, with the, with the comment. Let's see. Uh, I experienced the Beatles for the first time in 1989 thanks to the Beatles jukebox on the Commodore 64 that played Hey Jude and Hard Day's Night covers. So that's that's Emil's that's Emil's well actually. And yes, we if we insinuated that only recently have people started uh, using kind of eight bit music artistically, uh, obviously that is that is wrong. It is wrong, wrong, wrong. Um, but. Maybe maybe some of these claims are 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 overinflated. I don't know. Uh, Mark and Pete, what do you want to say? Well, okay. So, so I was the one who was talking about this last time, and and well, you were con- wrong. You were wrong. 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 wrong, wrong. Uh, you can't take my toys and going home. Infinity wrong plus one. Okay, plus I two. was plus three. So uh, some of this, so any assertion of the newness of this 8-bit video, uh, video game music being used to cover pop songs might have been distorted by my limited uh, sort of exposure to this sort of thing. I recently became exposed to this. I did personally. The, the, the human being known as Mark Lee became exposed to this recently as in the last couple of years through the Engadget podcast, which uses, you know, this sort of chiptune uh, covers of pop songs as the bumper music for their uh, for their podcasts. Right. And I was saying that, okay, so we've got taken this evolution from, you know, in the beginning, you know, when there was Nintendo, um, you know, all the best you could do to make music in a video game was with the bleeps and the bloops. And we evolved from that. You know, Super Nintendo had sort of the, the, the waveform synthesized, uh, waveform MIDI sort of music. And then eventually, you know, now you just get a symphony orchestra to record the actual music and you throw that into video game soundtrack. And, you know, there was this a move to get away from the 8-bit sound. And then now in our sort of postmodern reinterpretation, you know, taking the old and, and making it new again, we are re-embracing that art form and then... And then uh, you know, now it's sort of become this retro hipster, hip popular type of thing. Now, granted, that's sort of what I observe from that. What I may not have seen is something behind the scenes of all that, where this chip tone music never actually sort of went away and has always been around. Um, and maybe just uh, in, in certain circles has reemerged as a more popular type of art form. Mm-hmm. That's what I'd say about that. Cool. And then what I would what I would add is I think this idea of in-game music and true music. I don't remember the specific context in which it originally came up. Um, and yes, music is music, sure, um, granted. But uh, 
I think that there is something – there was a big jump that was made in video game technology uh, around – what I think what Final Fantasy VIII is kind of like the one where – which is usually cited as kind of a big st- uh, stepping stone or threshold here where, where everything changed. Where prior to this in earlier systems, the technical restrictions of the video game system really had a lot of, of restrictive influence on what sort of music you could put into a video game. Right? So video game music has this kind of like subset that's that's dictated by the hardware like you can't go more than this uh and then you have this big breakthrough where suddenly you can use digital digital music and all of a sudden it's fair game and videos games can include any kind of music that you can record reasonably right now i mean i don't know whether this was the topic that we were talking about maybe it was a different topic but hearing this whole thing about music is music i think it's important to think about maybe true is not the right word to use there but certainly a sense of sort of more more broadly unrestricted right more more broadly available um, and there is, of course, also the difference between music that is either sort of diegetic in the sense that it's produced within a work of art but as part of the narrative and part of the reality cr- framed in the work of art. And then there's also the idea of music that like serves a purpose, right? And that the noise you make when you jump or like music that, that is, is in the game for a variety of reasons does have certain semiotic differences from music that's either in the background or atmospheric or uh, and jordan would probably speak to this better than than i would because he's the real master of this stuff among my friends um but and i think if you read his cowboy bebop uh pieces which are excellent i really love jordan's cowboy bebop series and i've never watched i watched the show like twice i love reading his articles he talks a lot about the different ways that music is used in the pieces and and the and the roles of the different kinds of musical styles and how they move in and out of the action so i wouldn't say music is music the context in which music is related to a non-musical work of art or a semi-musical work of art that context is important uh to how the music functions and what it means in a given uh, circumstance for sure Yep. Uh, Tom writes in from 38 degrees. Oh, Tom, you've given. Oh, but us thank a- you for. Oh, by the way, but thank you to Emil. We don't want to smash Emil. Emil's pretty awesome too. And, no, Emil's pretty. Wanna- Emil's pretty awesome, yeah. and he uh, he corrected my Polish pronunciation one time. Uh, you can go back. There is an episode of the podcast uh, entitled "Bijona Gwumki." Uh, <laughs> I think I'm doing that right, and you can uh, you can go back and hear uh, hear Emil uh, uh, and his voice on his voicemail. Uh, awesome. Anyway, from Poland to the Philippines to Tom, uh, thirty eight degrees fifty four minutes north, seventy seven degrees one minute west. Uh, Tom had uh, written in suggesting that we talk about the Tila Tequila uh, Insane Clown Posse thing, which we did. Um, we did that. Uh, yep. Pete already had covered that, but I just wanted to acknowledge that what, there was a listener who wanted us to do it. Harry writes in from uh, Latitude, 51.4701 degrees north, longitude uh, 0.1682 degrees. I don't know. It's negative. I'm assuming negative means west. I think negative probably does mean west. Um which is the uh which is somewhere in the British Isles probably, right? Sure. It, I think it must be. Oh um, yeah, if the longitude is that close to zero. Yeah. Although 50, 50 is not very How far north is 50? Um let's see. Hold on a minute. Degrees north yeah, latitude. Yeah, Pete, well while Pete Googles, I will read. He says um uh I have some thoughts about the favorite overthinking at bugbear determinism and plot. Um there's a common image that the U.S. has of it. Oh, no, we're getting into dangerous territory, political territory here. Uh, bring it on. Bring it on. Harry says that the U.S. has a common image of itself as a, on the international stage, uh, that of the sleeping dragon, a powerful creature that is reluctant to fight, but that will, can't, that will be uh, unstoppable when it does decide to attack. Um, which ties neatly into a description of a narrative that has a lot of the Chosen One stuff having to do with it. Uh, the idea that uh, we're destined to fight, or that this Chosen One hero, the Chosen Hero in the kind of films and uh, narrative uh, products he's talking about, um, uh, the idea that they're destined to fight means that they can be forced into conflict against their will, but will be equipped to meet any foes that they face. This story is not unique to America, of course, but I think the idea of the reluctant but powerful hero resonates especially well with American audiences, uh, or at least screenwriters think it does. I haven't fully followed this train of thought through, um, but I would love to hear what you think of it. 
uh, Superman uh, versus James Bond, Luke Skywalker versus D'Artagnan, American Goku from Dragon Ball versus Japanese Goku. Uh, am Why I- would you even make that freaking comparison? <laughs> <laughs> am I on to something, Henry says, or am I just spouting rubbish? Um, May Odin's Skyfather smile upon you and make you have no fate but what you make, Harry the Jenkinson. Thanks, thanks so much, Harry. And he is in he is in Britain. Yeah, yeah. I just I checked the yeah. Yep. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Pete, what do you think? Dragon Ball American oh. Goku versus Japanese Goku. Uh, well, I mean, I think that that is a good point that he brings out here that. Um, the Japanese Goku fights from the very, very beginning, and he loves to fight, and he's always participating in fights. He's a children, a child. He beats up samur- wolf samurais and crime fighters. He's Christ crime fighting. He's doing all this stuff. And there's this uh, maybe there's a sense of discomfort in America with a child who likes to punch things just for the sake of punching things. Um, you know, for some reason, this character has to be reluctant to do this, or has to not want to, or has to be peaceful by nature, and and then has to transform right and and become this character who does these things. Um, and I mean, I think that it does tie into the chosen one narrative. I think in a lot of cases, people just cop Joseph Campbell for, because it sells, right? Because they, they say, oh, uh, Star Wars did it. It works for Star Wars. Like, this is a great way that you write a screenplay. It's in all the screenwriting books. Uh, and so we'll do this. We'll follow this arc. It's an easy way to give an arc to a character. Sure. And there, there's yeah. a whole industry, we should say, around... I mean, around people who want to write screenplays, you know what I oh, mean? God, around yeah. sort of fleecing rubes who, you know, who can be convinced to pay a lot of money for workshops or books or seminars or, you know, online something somethings uh, that have to do with, with writing screenplays. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, you see similar reflections of this kind of character in different cultures. I mean, I, I've, there, the, the example of the hero who kind of, uh, is very powerful, but is sort of like out of the game, right? Or has like sort of submitted to not be part of things anymore is more popular in, in Asia, I think, than it is in America. Um, think of like the sort of person, you know, the hermit on the mountaintop kind of character or somebody like Zadoichi or like the, uh, the hero in Hero who, right, is his heroism is he, he doesn't fight. Right. Um, so that, that's a different arc, right? You go from being, you know, martial to being non-martial. And here we're talking about these people who go from being kind of immobilized, not immobilized, but to being mobilized. It's funny, immobilized isn't really a, the antonym of mobilization. Uh, and I guess it's probably related to how America makes war, right, if we want to get political about it. Because uh, at least prior to World War II, um, all the way back to the days of the militias, all the way back to the French and Indian War – and to the early colonization, you know, Americans tended to be fairly isolationist and peaceful um, on a grand scale. Like, they'd fight small-scale conflicts, and they would bring their rifles out and, and shoot, you know, the Native Americans in their neighborhood just because they were, you know, not being nice and everything. Um, but there weren't these sort of, like, large-scale mobilizations of the entire populace on, like, a sort of national mission. Uh, you know, you see that in sort of Manifest Destiny-related stuff, but you don't really see it until um, the Cold War comes around, right, and the military-industrial complex and all that other stuff. Even in World War One and World War Two, there are these periods of peacetime, you know, where the spending falls and the government is less involved in making war and, and, and fighting. Uh, and that's a narrative that Americans like. We like the idea that we don't fight. We have the Cincinnatus, right, is, is uh, another nickname for George Washington, the American Cincinnatus, the farmer who becomes a soldier and then goes back to being a farmer when it's over and, and is not sort of a career warrior. Um, whereas countries that have been around for longer and experienced more prolonged conflict and marshaled their resources on a more consistent basis, uh, they may not connect with this narrative, perhaps, right? I think this is the political point that we're trying to make here uh, of, of kind of like periods of peace and periods of war, um, where the periods of war are really kind of reluctant. Uh, I guess the wheel of history turns and you sort of get a grayer idea of what exists in the middle. Now, I think that that might not actually be the way that it works. I think that's the narrative that we're talking about here. Um, but I'm not sure if that's the, the degree of reality associated with that narrative. Like, is that really how people are thinking and feeling? Is that really how people are making their heroes? Were there heroes like this in America prior to the international conflicts that we use as touchstones for developing this particular culture? Like, if you look back at the melodramatic plays of the, of the eight, early 1800s prior to the Civil War, um, do you still see these characters who are peaceful and then become warriors, right? Um, and I'm not sure. I mean, I, 
I'm trying to think yeah, back. I mean, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the kind of aggressive energy of America, I, America wasn't what it is now on the the international stage for most of its existence, right? It was this kind oh, yeah. of uh, back ass words kind of joke of a, you know, of a podunk little country. Uh, but most of its aggressive energy was was put into within its own borders, right? With yeah. uh, you know, slaughtering a lot of the the Native American tribes, with expanding, you know, expanding its reach from coast to coast um uh things like this and you know as recently as a hundred years ago there were or a hundred years ago and change there were parts of of america that were still kind of frontier you know that were oh, still, yeah, of course the frontier know. didn't change close until the mid 1800s sure yeah I mean, and it's also not fair to call a lot of this stuff slaughtering the native americans i mean they fought back a lot the slaughter part doesn't really happen until later well, but if you're talking yeah, about early colonial history of america like yes there are incidences of various things but like it's a war in a lot of places for yeah. a long time well and also you know, like, and there are there yeah. are a few colonists and there are a lot of indian tribes you yeah. know? Yeah, exactly. And so they won a fair number of battles, like in the French and Indian War, Seven Years' War, stuff like that. Uh, I just I don't want to shortchange the ability of Native Americans to fight back. I think that there's it's very easy to assume that they just rolled over and like never fought back. But that's a process that took hundreds of years. You know, it's not something that just happens in a day. That's so there's interesting. A lot the the identity happen. politics of that are, are, are so, or the kind of the the politics of that in general are so interesting, isn't it? Because it's yeah. not. It would be unacceptable to to not acknowledge the. Um, you know the sort of near genocide of of uh, a lot of people uh, and a lot of peoples uh, by the European folk who came, um, you know, and straight up genocide for a number of them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. for sure. And yeah. uh, and and yet, right? It is it is somehow, and I think you're right. It is somehow seen as kind of degrading to uh, intimate that they had no agency at the time and that all they yeah. could do was lie down and be killed that's a yeah. Yeah, that's a tricky needle to, needle to thread politically isn't it that really is that's a really good point uh, definitely can, can i jump in here I'm, yeah. I'm trying to make the connection between what uh you originally talked mentions is our one of our favorite bugbears determinism and plot and then this idea of america as a sleeping dragon i thought originally when we talk about determinism and plot that's like when I was a, a kid, my parents beat me and abused me, and that's why I'm a, a, I am a, I'm a criminal now. Oh, no, no, no. That's no? not what uh, – when I talk about determinism uh, in, in sort of a rage on the podcast, which you do from time to time, I'm referring to those times where it's like, you are the chosen one. You need to go and fight M. Bison. There's no reason at all why this is the case. Okay, okay. You okay, need okay. to do this. You know, and it's, it's like – it's this idea that um, – that not practicing or learning about a subject makes you better at it in the long run. I guess it's like it's like that. That's the thing that that kind of um, it works. It, it, to get away from the violence, let's just talk about it in terms of romance, right? And, and and this is there's this idea out there that all you have to do is be yourself, right? And 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 be your true self, and and love magical love will find you. And that that the sort of best romantic heroes are the totally naive ones, right? Both on male and female, right? The the virgins and the sort of like wide eyed ingenues and those kinds of lover characters like that is where real love comes from and i think that a lot of us in reality um as outside of fiction um although i kind of hate using the word reality there because it is self-imagined but um realize that yes there is a lot of practice that it goes into trying to have good relationships and then like you're not necessarily as good at it now as you were when you were like 17 Right. But for some reason, these narratives are like allergic to practice. They're like they hate this idea that people get better at things over time, that maybe when the world is in trouble, the person that you should send to fix things is not like the grocery clerk. It is probably, in fact, the professional soldier who can like go out and fix things. You know, the person who's been training the whole time for like just this kind of circumstance. And like that's the Japanese Goku character. It's like, oh, like we need the best fighter that there is. How about this fighter who's been fighting until he, since he was a six year old kid, as opposed to the American Goku character who's like how about this high school student who like has a mysterious past and like doesn't want to actually do any of these things we're telling him to do like um that's what when we're talking about determinism we're saying that fate will step in and make a character do things that they would never do under normal circumstances like like and then that's kind of like the the sort of 
plotting problem I have with it. Mm. And, and, it's, and I think it, what it is is it's a way of ideologically – it does two things. It, well, three things. It ideologically justifies this, um, this, this trend that is being talked about in this email that Harry's talking about, this Joseph Campbell hero's journey. It, it gives us more male ingenues to like set off along their journeys because it doesn't really matter whether you can actually do something or not. You can start out being this well, wide-eyed farm boy and you can go become the savior of the universe. Uh, the second thing that it does is it allows uh, these people, these narratives to connect with people who are very religious uh, or who think of the world in a religious way without actually mentioning God, right? And it's like, this is, you, you, you have to do this, you have a destiny to do this. Uh, it's, it's very religious language, but right, they always say, you know, chosen, like, chosen one, chosen by whom? Exactly. And I think that it's, it's kind of like a nod. I, I mean, when I watch these things, I often feel like, well, this person is chosen by God to do this, right? But, but you don't talk about God because you want to be, you know, you want to not step out of line and get bashed by people. You want to be, you know, you want to have your cake and eat it too. Oh, and then the third thing that it does is uh, it just sort of like adds fake urgency and purpose to whatever is happening in your plot like it just it's a i feel like there's probably one guy it's a way it's like, a out cheap there. way it's a cheap yeah. way to make the internal psychological conflict of a character and the external plot conflict uh coextensive that's a great way of saying it yeah definitely yeah. okay well not to open up another can of worms here okay yes to open up another can of worms here and to bring in my favorite topic terminator um how do we exactly interpret john connor in this right because he's not quite exactly um, the chosen one that you are um, that you are poo pooing, Pete, right? In that he actually does these things, or this this at least this flesh and blood human being in at least one other timeline will go on and become the savior of mankind. But if you just look at it the within the confines of 1991 present, John Connor being told by his mom and uh, Arnold that he is going to be the the savior of mankind. He doesn't exactly, you know, buy that, and uh, and there's some of that sort of Joseph Campbellish type of stuff going on there. What do you think about that? I mean, honestly, I mean, and forgive me if this is gets you gets you upset at me, Mark. Um, but I'm just going to come out and say something you might consider controversial. The Terminator story isn't about John Connor, not at all. Oh, it's John not controversial Con- at all. No, go on. Yeah, yeah, John Connor is not the main character of the Terminator story. Uh, he is not should not be the focus of the Terminator story. And if you want to write a good Terminator story. Don't make it about John Connor. Certainly not adult John Connor. It's, it's the whole issue of, like, Superman, right, in the Justice League. You can't make all the Justice League stories about Superman without somehow taking away his powers for no reason, right? And, like, because Superman – where Superman can be a really useful tool in telling stories, stories that center on Superman get really hard to tell really fast because he's supposed to be able to solve all of your problems for you, right? So, so John Connor – so, so the Terminator 1 and Terminator 2 are about Sarah Connor, right? Right. Like, that's what they're about. And they're about this woman and about the sort of uh, the giant promise that's associated with having children, right? And it's both the, the responsibility and the possibility and the sort of sense of, almost of magic, right? And, and, and a sort of mystical, mysticality and, and, and purpose of the future that's involved in reproducing and being responsible for another human being in that way. Uh, and also the way that the world can be very hostile to you while you're trying to do this. And John Connor in Terminator 2 is not really John Connor, the savior of the world. He's a small child. And and, and so in that sense, it works. And it doesn't really matter that he has this destiny to do this thing because there aren't really scenes in Terminator 2 where John Connor, like, picks up a machine gun and, like, mows down a row of robots. And you're like, oh, man, like, there he is. Like, he's got the power. Like, he's, he's the man. Like, there's the savior. Like, he's just a kid. The most he does is hack a security code and hand his mom uh, some bullets. Yeah, like he Aside has like from a, that, yeah. he is a liability in a lot of ways because they have to run around and try to protect him. But when yeah, I'll exactly. say, I mean, I'll say this for the people who did at least the the Sarah Connor Chronicles TV show. Um, they they show Sarah in the process of like training John. It's clear that at the time that the TV show opens, they've done a lot of like drills and weapons <laughs> training, and you know he he knows a lot about. Uh, strategy and tactics in warfare and about Skynet and like that there's there's been this process this off-screen process uh, of education that's gone on Pete I wonder if this has something to do with a with a kind of film versus television or rather a kind of a one-off versus episodic narrative Mm -hmm. structure you know Um, right because uh, in a um, in a TV show, in a series of comic books, in a serialized novel, you can see people try and fail and try and fail and try and fail and then get better, 
you know yeah it's it's easier to dramatize that mm. uh that process whereas in a film you know you're in and out in 120 minutes or less and you you kind of need the the switch from from neophyte to uh master to happen instantaneously Right. Yeah. And actually, yeah. this is it's almost a parody of itself in The Matrix where, you know, it's like it's as easy as loading a video game cartridge and suddenly, you know, I know Kung Fu. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, did you read that great, great? And I really recommend people track this down. The great email that um, David Mamet wrote to the writing staff yes. of the unit. Yes. That's so good. Where he's like, well, he basically says that the microcosm of TV writing is failure. Like, why, how do we make these scenes dramatically interesting? We have the hero want to accomplish something, or whoever is the subject of the scene want to accomplish something, and we watch that person fail, right? Like, it's all well and good to have somebody yell, like, I think what it was the example he used, you know, we must kill the prime minister or all Europe will be engulfed in flames, you know? Like, you can have scenes like that, which is basically 24, right, nonstop. Sure. Um, but past a certain point, it's going to be awful, and it's not going to have any dramatic tension. Um, but yeah, but I think that I think that that's I mean for me personally that's the lesson. And I won't say too much about it for fear of spoiling. I feel like that's the lesson of the end of the Sopranos, which is that the microcosm of television writing is that you you set something up and you repeat it, and you set something up and you repeat it, and it doesn't actually have to ever finish, right? And that's I think what a lot of serialized television shows run into that that problem, like like Lost and like Battlestar Galactica and like these heavily serialized shows that just rely on this cycle of trying and failing and trying and failing getting just close enough and then not really understanding it. No, there's a whole bunch of other stuff you don't know. And, and all it really is is this repetition of this dramatic uh, feeling of, of getting just almost there and then nothing. Uh, and to the extent, at the end, that, that's what they get good at. And they don't get good at finishing the story. Well, uh, we So get, I think there's a big... yeah. You know, we've gotten good at one thing, and that's finishing the podcast. <laughs> Finish him <laughs> after uh, after about an hour. So um, that is, uh, of course, we didn't even clear the backlog. No, let alone get to uh. some of the new stuff of uh, of our of our uh, uh, listener feedback. But you know what? That's how interesting you are, and that's how many uh, things uh, you make us think of. So if you want uh, to write, if you want to get on the docket for future listener feedback episodes, you can email us at at podcast at overthinkingit dot com or call two zero three. 285-6401. You can call or text 203-285-6401. It remains for me to thank the panel and um, and to, to remind you to check us out, well, to uh, donate your cash money, your dollar dollar bills to us using the uh, PayPal link on the site and to visit us during the week at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably Mark Lee. Foley. Mark Lee. <laughs> Is awesome. Ah, <laughs> oh, you got me again. You win this round, Mark Lee. <laughs>